I had this kind of long, dark night of the soul where I was like, okay, I can't keep doing this, but I like the sex that I'm having. Is there a way that I can be me, that I can be myself and still have these results, but not be so toxic and not be so manipulative? Because if I keep doing this, I'm going to kill myself. Hello and welcome, fellow human. My name is Zachary Stockhill, and you are listening to Humans in Love, a podcast that looks at culture, relationships, and personal development from unconventional perspectives. Consider it self-improvement that doesn't take itself too seriously. Thanks for being here. Hello and welcome, fellow human. Welcome to Humans in Love. And... I'm standing here at my vocal booth trying to amp myself up and sound a little more lively. (laughs) But the truth is, yesterday I got back from a seven-day tantra yoga retreat. So if I sound a little more zen (laughs) than usual, that's probably why. I was in the the wilderness of northern Thailand for a week. I wasn't online very much and didn't watch any television not a whole lot of internet, not a whole lot of music, not a whole lot of anything except for a lot of lectures about tantric relationships and tantric sexuality, meditation, and a whole lot of tantric yoga. So <laughs> I'm feeling pretty mellow to say the least. It's, it's a really beautiful feeling. And I expect in a future episode, I will have a whole lot more to say about tantra and what I'm learning And what my experience has been like as I go further down this path. But for now, I'm kind of feeling like just being really quiet about it and just kind of listening and processing my experience and sort of just soaking in the bliss of uh, what the the last week was, was like for me. So stay tuned for a future episode if you're curious, because I'm at a point now where I think it's really important to demystify and hopefully clarify some of the misperceptions that surround Tantra and Tantric sexuality. And I'm going to seek out a podcast guest who knows way more about the topic than me and who will hopefully help me clarify a little bit about Tantra for you. So stay tuned for that coming to this podcast very soon. My guest today is Harris O'Malley, better known as Dr. Nerdlove. Dr. Nerdlove is one of my favorite dating blogs. He, um, He's a really refreshing voice. He brings interesting perspectives to dating and relationships. He's often quite funny uh, with lots of references to pop culture. And I think he's particularly good reading and, as you'll see in this podcast, good listening for men. He helps to clarify a lot of misperceptions that men have about women and dating and double standards about sex and, uh, and all the rest. So particularly for male listeners, I think you're going to want to stick around for today's episode. In our conversation, Harris and I talk about his experiences as an ordained minister, which is pretty funny. He tells some really great stories about his early dating experiences and what set him on this path toward learning how to become better with women and eventually becoming known as Dr. Nerdlove. We talk about uh, double standards, as I mentioned, with sex and relationships and women. We talk about consent, which is very important, and a little bit about the, you know, the kind of the culture surrounding Me Too. But for anyone listening to this, whether you're male or female, I think you're going to want to listen because Harris brings a very unique and refreshing perspective to sex, dating, and relationships. He's also very funny, so I think you're going to really enjoy this episode. A quick note before we get started that, as always, your support, your ratings and reviews on iTunes slash Apple Podcasts are very, very much appreciated, and they are really uh, important for me to reach more listeners. So if you're enjoying Humans in Love and you'd like me to continue making new episodes, Be sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice and leave a rating and a review. Without any further ado, a very zen Zachary Stockhill bringing you Mr. Harris O'Malley. Great. So my first question, I suppose the first thing we should clarify is you're not actually a doctor, correct? 
No. Well, if you want to get really technical, I'm a real fake doctor. I spent 25 bucks and got a doctorate in metaphysics from the Universal Life Church <laughs> because they were the only diploma mill out there that didn't actually require that I write something for them. So I said, hey, why not? That's hilarious. When, when did you do that? Um, I did that a couple of years ago just because I thought, you know what, it'd be kind of fun to have a fake diploma to go with being a fake online doctor. <laughs> I might have to look into that myself. That's fantastic. I wonder if they're still doing that or if they've, they've caught on the fact, to the fact that people like you are <laughs> taking advantage of that program. Well, I'm pretty sure they're still doing it because I don't think they expect anyone to take it seriously. I mean, they, the big thing for the Universal Life Church is that they ordain people so they can do marriages, which is I, I'm also technically an ordained minister. Have you ordained a marriage yet? Uh, I've done several, actually. Really? From Are these from yeah. people who are reading your blog or, or who? Uh, mostly friends, occasionally uh, occasionally readers who became friends. But it's literally I've been an ordained minister since college because the, one night during the Super Bowl, I got bored and said, hey, you know what might be fun? Let's be a priest. <laughs> wow. Because if nothing else, then I could at least make holy water. Yeah, yeah. Well, take me through that for a minute, though. So if you're if you're. Uh, what's the word ordaining or overseeing a wedding? What's, mm -hmm. what's that like? Like what, what's involved in that for you? What I will usually do is that we'll go over with the, uh, the bride and the groom or the groom and the groom or the bride and the bride or whatever combination thereof and talk a little bit about what their story is, what, you know, what moments in their relationship have a lot of meaning to them, what sort of things they feel like really defines who they are as a couple and I work that into sort of the uh, the ceremony, as it were. And then we usually go over like, all right, are there any particular like readings that you really like? Are there any anything you really want to lean into, lean away from? And then try to kind of just create a, a speech to kind of sum up their relationship if they like the sort of thing that's like, all right, and here's, you know, now some wise words about relationships. Then I can do that. If they want it to be a little bit more silly, then I can do that. I did one wedding where the uh, couple, everybody in the in the wedding party dressed up as pirates. And I, at the last minute, realized I don't have a pirate costume. So I ended up with an old ninja costume I used to do paintball in. So I told everybody I was the Dread Priest Roberts. <laughs> how, uh, how has your approach to that changed since you first started doing it? Like when you first started, did you do things that you don't do now when you do weddings? Um, not really. I mean, the only... The only thing that's really changed is that with experiences, I've gotten a little bit more used to knowing where the where the uh, speed bumps are going to be, I guess. And so if there if there's a case where like they just like, um, I don't know what we want to say, then I've got some stuff I've I've written and read before that I know that generally goes over well. And then I can adapt it more thoroughly to the couple as it goes. OK. Can you give me, are these biblical quotations or what, what, uh, what are your go-to lines when you're overseeing weddings? Um, it really is going to depend on the couple. Generally, if someone wants biblical quotes, I'm not the person they go to. They usually have like an actual minister or someone from the church they go to. So for me, sometimes it's, um, especially because if it's someone who's coming to me, it's usually someone who's a little bit geeky. So there is usually some sort of pop culture reference in there. Like there have been, um, we've, I've done references for, um, the, for uh, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Um, one that comes up surprisingly often are couples who like uh, Spike's quote about love from Buffy, where he explains that love is not brains, children. Love is blood demanding that you work your will. <laughs> and, you know, you will, you know, you'll fight and you'll shag and you'll hate each other till your teeth ache and you will love each other madly, but you will never be friends. And so that's that's one that goes over really well with nerds to a certain age. <laughs> wow. OK, well, that, that actually is a perfect segue into my next question. Why nerd love? Where did that name come from? What does that name mean to you? Well, the name was actually a nickname that was given to me that stuck because I back in the day, I used to be on a geek centric entertainment podcast called The League of Extremely Ordinary Gentlemen. And we were part of a movie review website called Spill.com, which unfortunately is no longer around. But um, one night we were doing an episode based around uh, Scott Pilgrim versus the world when that movie came out. And so we called it the league versus our evil exes. 
And at the time, I was the league's resident man about town, as it were. So we were taking a lot of questions from our listeners about like their evil exes, evil in quotes, and you know, failed relationships and whatnot. And I kind of took point on them. And then that that episode went over really well and really got did was really popular. So we did another one for Valentine's Day that year. And we really just kind of decided, all right, this is just going to be all listener questions. And one of the co-hosts uh, called me and our very own uh, Dr. Nerdlove. And I thought to myself, you know, that's actually kind of catchy. I think I'll work with that. So what what does the word nerd mean to you? Because we live in an age now with Chris Hardwick and stuff and Nerdist where it's mm -hmm. kind of been reappropriated. But what, what what do you think of when you hear the word nerd? Nerd, and this is one where I tend to get into arguments with people because there are people who really want to put like a dichotomy or dichotomy of definition between uh, nerd and geek or geek and dork or whatnot. But to me, they're all fairly interchangeable. And really, it just comes down to what it is that you're passionate about and how you engage with it. Nerds and geeks don't just like enjoy something. They really they don't passively enjoy things. They really want to get into it. And it may mean that they if they're really into video games, they may really just kind of get deep into the systems within the game and see, all right, what happens if I start poking with, you know, poking these parts of it with a stick? Or if I do these things that the game, you know, the game developers may never have intended. Or trying to learn how to mod it themselves and create their own versions of their own adventures within the games. Uh, there are writing nerds who really are into the process of writing or getting into the minds of their favorite authors or collecting everything they've ever done because they really want to know what does this author you know, have to say about these subjects? What are the things that influence them? And they may go track the, those authors' influences back further. And then, of course, you've got people who really get into the mechanics and the secrets of the universe who want to get into STEM. So they really they're nerds for science and they're nerds for engineering. And honestly, you can get into you can be a nerd or a geek about just about anything. The only real difference between someone who plays fantasy football and someone who plays Dungeons and Dragons is that one has got umber halts and paladins and the other one has got yard, you know, rushed yards and uh, fantasy drafts. Otherwise, it's not that different. It's playing a very real form of make-believe, just using different statistics to decide how everything goes. Do you, do you find that, well, I guess my question is, do you have a, an idea of who your audience is, like mainly who you're writing for? So I, I assume that they're mostly who we might call nerds, but is there a certain personality type, you think, or...? It, my audience is actually really interesting because I write my advice primarily for a heterosexual cisgendered male audience, because most of my advice is coming from my own experiences or research that I did in trying to learn how to get better at dating and get better being social. But in the process of it, I've developed a, like my audience who reads it is split 50 50. So I've got a pretty straight um, down the middle divide between uh, men and women who read my stuff. But a lot of the things they have in common are a lot of people who feel really kind of insecure about their social skills. They weren't well socialized growing up. Sometimes it's because that they're on the spectrum to one degree or another. And other times it's just because they've had a lot of solitary interests and just didn't really do things that brought them in contact with other people or because they have interests that were outside of the mainstream, they ended up being bullied or ostracized by people who just didn't like what they had. And so they're a little hesitant to re-engage outside of their very narrow um, window of comfort. One of the things I just recently, yet last night, in fact, uh, went to a critic screening for Ready Player One, which actually delves into uh, this issue really interestingly, where the person who created the this world's internet, the Oasis, is someone who is deeply uncomfortable with the real world, but everything about the movie and about the contest he's created is about getting over one's fears and relitigating the regrets in one's life so that other people who are following in his footsteps learn from his example and learn to not let their fears rule them and not give up on their dreams because they feel like they can't for some reason. Interesting. What's the verdict on the film? 
it's better than the book. <laughs> Um, and I say that as someone who the book was written for, I mean, I was an eighties kid growing up. So that book was aimed squarely at me and on the first read through, okay, it's a kind of trashy read, but it's pandering and it's pandering directly at me. But the more times I've read through it, the more I've picked up on some really uncomfortable stuff with, uh, the gender roles and the casual sexism in it. There's also a lot of casual transphobia in it. And I kind of have, I kind of take issue with the idea of the only part of fandom that's important is just memorizing everything because that makes you cool. And what I think is more important isn't just rote memorization of facts, but how you engage with it. Like, do you, do you just play a game to win or do you play it because you really enjoy the thrill of playing the game? What is it about the game that brings it to you? Like some people play games because they want a critical path their way through the storyline. Other times they want to play games because they like to see what happens if they take an open world game like Far Cry or um, Grand Theft Auto and then turn it into a chaos simulator. Like what's going to happen if I just do this crazy thing that I might never do in the real world? Like if I just pile 40 cars up and then drive a train straight through them, what's going to happen? And that sort of thing gets more interesting to me because you're now doing more with it than just passively consuming it. You're now engaging with it. You're now playing around with it, seeing where the limits are and what you can do with it. That's really interesting. And I see some parallels. Um, I am a bona fide history nerd. And some people Mm -hmm. think that they're, quote unquote, good at history because they have all these facts memorized. But it's like, that's not the point. You know, it's like, how are you actually engaging with it? How is it changing your life? How is it changing the way you think in the world? Um, that's interesting. Yeah. So, yeah. And recently it's been a great time for history just because of stuff like Hamilton, which has been reigniting people going like, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. The music is amazing and catchy, but it's showing people sides of characters who otherwise are just kind of dry names on a paper and dates that you had to memorize. Absolutely. And, and I mean, I love history and I don't understand people who say, I, I should, I should qualify that. I love history and I never used to understand people who'd say, oh, it's boring. I realized that it's the way it was taught for so long. And Mm -hmm. I think that's starting to change, at least in in my native Canada and in the United States and other places. But yeah, it's the way it was taught for for so long, because how could you not be interested in the story of humanity? You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, yeah. Anyway, shift shifting focus a little bit. I want to know more about your background, like how. Uh, What were some of your earliest experiences with women dating relationships? Like, were you a pretty geeky kid growing up and did that, was that difficult for you to to sort of get out of your shell a bit? Oh, I was deep, deep geeky. And to to make matters really frustrating is, is I've got a twin brother who was the opposite of me. We are the worst twins ever. So whereas (laughs) I was young, I was shy and bookish. He was athletic and outgoing. Um, I am broad. He is thin. He, I am, you know, I am blonde. He is brunette. And whereas I'm a geek and I was really into pop culture and to video games and whatnot, he was much more into, he, he liked some pop culture and video games like most people our age did, but he was more into sports and more into doing like doing that sort of thing. So, and then, you know, he, Growing up, he's the one that goes on to become the star athlete in college and a uh, accomplished engineer. He's literally a rocket scientist. And here I am, the black sheep bohemian of the family who's you know making his living with an English degree. <laughs> so growing up, I was all of my pursuits were primarily solitary. I liked reading. I liked playing games. I liked kind of being off on my own and making up my own little adventures. And while I had some friends who were into the same things I was, I really never got much in the way of um, social skills when it came to things like relationships, when it came to things like charm or personal charisma. And whereas I had friends who were very much like that, there is one of my oldest friends, uh, a guy who on the blog, I call him Miles, is the sort of person who it's a good thing he is the nicest guy ever because he looks like the love child of Zac Efron and Rob Lowe. And, you know, that that's okay because also he's really insanely talented and funny. And if he wasn't, you know, if I didn't love him like a brother, I might have to murder him and wear his skin as my face. Yeah, I hate this guy. Because... 
Yeah. <laughs> you can't hate him because you get to know him, and he is the most genuine, sweetest, nicest guy you'll ever meet. So it's like, oh, I hate you, but I can't. <laughs> um, why do you have to be so good? But he is the sort of person that attracts women the way that cheese attracts mice, and he does it without thinking about it. And so when he was around, I was just like, all right, well, I'm invisible. I'm just going to fade into the woodwork and not even bother trying. And that defined a lot of my life, having never had any real practical talent for being social with people I was attracted to. I'm not having an idea how to do any better. I turned to pop culture like a lot of geeks did. And unfortunately, like a lot of other geeks, particularly of my generation, I absorbed all the wrong lessons when it came to it because I came away from watching movies like Pretty in Pink or some kind of wonderful or anything that involves relationships for people who are even vaguely my age going like, oh, okay, so the nice guy who's the best friend is the one who's going to eventually get the girlfriend, I guess. Cool. <laughs> All right. I know what to do. Why isn't this translating to real life? And it just, I, I learned how to be the nice guy, capital T, capital N, capital G, where my friendship with so many women was predicated on the idea that, hey, eventually you're going to realize you're in love with me and give me what I want. And that is not a good thing to do to someone you supposedly care about. All I'm doing is just telling these people that, hey, my friendship with you comes with an agenda and I expect you to pay it up eventually. So that got me through... In the first 20 to 25 years of my life, my uh, only serious relationship was really toxic. It lasted for far longer than it should have, but I didn't know any better. And then after a couple of failed attempts at relationships, um, things came to a head when I went to my brother's wedding. And Miles and I ended up going head to head over the same girl. And not only did she like Miles better, but their hotel room was right next to mine. Oh, no. So, yeah, not sure if loud sex or exorcism. <laughs> so as I am sitting there crying and masturbating and using my tears as lube, I'm, I have what I eventually called my Batman moment, where it's just like, you know, a bat comes crashing through the window and Bruce Wayne says, yes, it's a sign, father, I shall become the bat. And except in my case, the bat crashing through the window was my being a good little nerd and typing how to get good with girls into Google and discovering Neil Strauss's The Game. Of course. And and that that book was like a revelation to me. It's like, wait, wait, wait. These are I, I can learn how to do this. Like this is a mechanical process. My God, you're blowing my mind. And I took to it with the passion of the newly converted and so I've read the book. I read it cover to cover like it was Holy Writ, which is really kind of funny because it's made up to look like a Bible. And then I discovered that uh, Mystery Method, then since becoming the Venusian Arts or something like that, was having a boot camp in my town. And it was the most expensive thing I'd ever paid for. But I thought, you know what? If I don't do this, I'm going to regret it forever. And, and it's just, just to pause you for one minute, yeah. I want to let you go on. But for anyone listening to this who doesn't know, Neil Strauss, it's like the pickup Bible. This is like in the, I guess, the mm -hmm. mid-aughts when pickup artistry is becoming this big thing. Uh, there was that show on yeah. VH1. What was it called? With Miss, like pickup artist. Yeah, it was. Yeah, there you go. Mm. Um, and Mystery, capital M, Mystery is a Canadian. He's known as like one of the early sort of founders of that whole movement. So you went to his one of his pickup artistry boot camps. Is that right? Yeah. And I learned a lot. I am, I am not exaggerating when I say that it was life changing for me because it broke down the idea of social interaction into easily digestible format that for the first time ever made sense to me. Now, the problem is, is that at the same time as they were breaking everything down and turning it into stuff that I could understand – it was also, first of all, trying to turn it all into human interaction as a flow chart. So instead of being with someone and being my authentic self and 
finding a way to present myself in a way that was more appealing and really kind of helped me connect with the person I was talking to, I was using routines, pre-written dialogue, basically, where I, I would say I would tell these very specific stories or to use these very specific jokes or tricks that would then convey these ideas about who I was, these demonstrations of higher social value. And so I was essentially trying to graft other people's stories onto who I was. And then on top of that, a lot of what we were being taught wasn't social interaction so much as high pressure sales tactics. So a lot of the stuff, especially back then that was being taught, were the same sort of things that car salesmen, no joke, would be using on you. And they would be using things like reciprocity where you feel obligated to do something for somebody who has done something for you, no matter how small. So when you go to, when you go someplace and they offer you, you know, would you like some water that's invoking reciprocity because now they have done something for you and you feel obligated to pay that favor back. Even if it's only just sitting there and letting them pitch to you a little bit longer and, or doing things like the compliance ladder where you try to get someone to say yes over and over again, because the more often somebody says yes, the more often they want to continue saying yes. So a lot of what we were being taught was how to be fake and how to be manipulative. And <laughs> bless Pete, it worked. I was doing really well, in fact, and going out and having a lot of sex and a lot of adventures, but it was never comfortable. It was never really something I felt good about because my entire life started to revolve around pickup and how I was doing. Every interaction I had with other guys, whether they were in the pickup scene or not, was based around status and power. Am I more alpha than they are? Do they have more value than I do? How do I bring their value down and raise mine so that they're not my competition? If I was interacting with women, then it was like, all right, how am I going to either get what I want from you, which nine times out of 10 was sex, or am I going to use you to get what I want from somebody else? And that is a really toxic way to live. And most of the people I knew who I spent time with who were my wingmen we all hit the wall in one way or another. And because you can't be that fake and that manipulative and not have that happen. So what happened for me one night was I was getting ready to leave a club with this woman. And I was already thinking to myself, how am I going to go back to her place, have sex with her and then leave and never have to talk with her again. And at which point, I kind of realized that I couldn't do this. I didn't like her that much. I didn't like the people I was hanging out with or the clubs I was going to. I was spending more money every night and than I really could afford to. And every night that I went out where if I did badly, I felt horrible. Where I did well, I felt elated, but there was no in-between because I had tied my entire self-worth to whether or not I got a phone number or a date or laid that night. So I, I told her, hey, listen, um, you're great. I can't do this. Have a good night. I'm going home. And I had this kind of long, dark night of the soul where I was like, okay, I can't keep doing this, but I like the sex that I'm having. Is there a way that I can be me, that I can be myself and still have these results, but not be so toxic and not be so manipulative? Because if I keep doing this, I'm going to kill myself. And what eventually came down to is I decided I had to go back to basics. Like why were we taught these things? What actually worked? What didn't work? Is there other ways of doing this that weren't so awful? And so I just started reading everything I could get my hands on that had to do with psychology, with social psychology, with human sexuality and realizing so much of what we'd been taught was based around really wrong or outdated ideas about things like male and female sexuality, like the idea that women aren't as sexual as men and have to be, you know, coerced or cajoled into wanting to sleep with someone. No, that is not true at all. But, but that is what we were taught. And why do women pick the people they pick? Well, they pick people because they have these specific traits. No, not at all. It's about connection. And so I, had to relearn everything that I had learned and find ways that made it work and not only work in the real world, but work in a way that was consensual, that was authentic, that wasn't manipulative. So there wasn't a case of like, I am 
pressuring someone into sex they may not want to have, but they feel like they have to. And instead, finding someone who wanted to be there and wanted to be involved as much as I did. And how would I identify these people? How would I, you know, connect with them? And it was a long learning process. And over the course of this, it was, you know, people would ask me questions and I would answer their questions. And then eventually it kind of took on life of its own when I started the blog. What were some of your experiences like when you were sort of after your dark night of the soul, after you were exiting the pickup community? Did you struggle for a while? Yeah, because um, I there's there is a process to learning any skill and it goes I, I forget who termed it, but it goes from unconscious um unconscious unskilled, which means that you don't know how unskilled you are. You don't know what you're doing at all to consciously unskilled, which is to say, you know, you're now very aware that you don't know what you're doing to consciously competent, which means now you can, you can do it as long as you're thinking about it. But if you start to think about it too hard, then it messes you up to unconscious competence, which is kind of like muscle memory. So for me, it was like, okay, I need to stop doing these old routines. I need to stop doing these old behaviors. I need to start doing, trying these new things that, you know, and see if they work. And that was a struggle because now it's, now I'm in terror incognita. I've got vague ideas based a little bit on what they taught me much, some of which was accurate, but also how do I make this line up with these other things I've learned? And so there was a lot of, a lot of experimentation and a lot of frustration and a lot of nights going home going like, I don't know if I can keep doing this because I keep going out and striking out and doing horribly and it's still starting to mess with my head. And so there was, a, there was a lot more of kind of rediscovering my identity. Who was I if I wasn't the club guy that I thought I was and where would I meet the people who I connected with the most? And so I kind of also had to change where I was going and how I was meeting people. It's really easy to go to a nightclub or to a singles bar and talk to a dozen women in a night because that's what it's all there for. You're going to a place where socialization is expected and encouraged. It's a lot harder to do that if you're trying to meet people at, say, Barnes & Noble or a uh, Watersons or whatever because they are semi-social spaces, but they're not spaces where the social contract says, yes, this is where people come to meet strangers. And so I wasn't able to do like go out and experiment with the same same number of people of, all right, I'm going to talk to 10 people. I'm going to try 10 different things. I'm going to see what works and what doesn't. I couldn't do that anymore. And so there was a long, there was a kind of a long lull, but then the sun started to tick back up again. And when it did, I was doing better, doing better in the sense of like, even my failures didn't hurt quite so much because more often than not, if we, you know, if we connected at all, if we were having a good conversation, then I was having a good experience. I wasn't coming away from this thinking like, oh God, I didn't get laid. I was coming away from this going like, cool. I had a really awesome conversation. That person is cool. If I never talk to this person again, at least I had a really good night tonight. And some of it was changing, changing my outlook. Instead of going out and saying, I'm going to get laid tonight no matter what, it was going out and saying, Somewhere out there is, is a story. There is an adventure out there. It is a story. It may be that I get a date. It may be that I'm going to, and this actually happened, talk to somebody who owned a uh, gold mine in the Yucatan and had crazy stories about it. And whatever the adventure is going to be, whatever the story I'm going to have for that night is going to be, I'm going to just find it and I'm going to enjoy it. And opening myself up to those possibilities made it much easier to be social because now I'm just connecting with people. I don't have an agenda. It's just, I want to see if there's anyone out there who's interesting and what makes them tick. And I want to hear about it. And maybe I'll be the interesting one. Maybe I'll tell some stories to people. Hey, that'll be cool too. And because I was being more myself, it was easier. I wasn't feeling like I was faking. I wasn't feeling like I was trying to impress people. I wasn't trying to create this persona. And people responded to it. They responded to the authenticity. And there were a lot of times where I was awkward because I was trying to trying new things and I was nervous and I would trip over my tongue. But more often than not, people responded to that because it was authentic awkwardness. And because it was like, oh, OK, that was a little bit awkward. I'm sorry. As opposed to like, oh, God, I've ruined all my value. I must leave now. And 
once it got to that point, things started to pick up and things started to go much more smoothly. And when I was starting to have more success again, but it was more that I was meeting friends who we also just had a sexual connection rather than I'm going to get what I want and then maybe we'll see each other again and maybe we won't, probably not. Right, right. I love the way you you reframed that and I just think that's that's a really great reframing for anyone going out trying to meet people. Somewhere out there tonight, there's a story. That That's really, I, I like that a lot. I think that should be uh, like a bumper sticker or something. That's, that's really great. Um, what did you keep doing though? I'm actually curious about the lessons you learned earlier in your experiences in the, in the pickup community. What did like, what, what lessons do you carry around with you today from that time? I'm sure you didn't throw all of that away. No, cause there was a lot of stuff out there that I actually got a lot of value from. And I think there is, there could be more value in the pickup scene if it were, weren't based on so many toxic ideas. But like one of the things that they taught me that I still use to this day is how easy it is to strike up a conversation with someone. You like a lot of guys, especially who don't have very much in the way of social experience, feel like we need to have an excuse to talk to someone. And we really don't. If you're in a place where socialization is encouraged, like a bar, like a club, then the only really reason you need to talk to someone is that they seem interesting to you. And that's, literally what I would say to someone is I would literally say to them, Hey, you seem like you're really cool. I'm hi. My name is Harris. And other times if it was a less social space, if it was like more of a coffee shop or something, then I would have other tools under my, in my belt that would allow me to start a conversation with them. I would use what, uh, in the pickup scene was called an observational opener where I use, I say something about what's going on around us. It may be that talking about the music that's playing in store, maybe talking about something that's happening, something, some, some shared experience that we can both reference immediately. And that's usually enough. Even if I put it out there as a statement, that's usually enough to get a response from someone. And as soon as they've responded, Hey, now we're having a conversation because I'm going to, there's that back and forth. And they taught me a lot about how to recognize when someone was actually interested in me versus when someone was being polite. Like you can t like um, you can see the fake smile because their smile doesn't necessarily reach their eyes or they start to have body language cues that says, all right, I'm ready to go where they start to uh, pivot their body away from you. Or they start to rock their weight to their uh, to their back leg or to the leg that's further away from you. And other things they were I was taught was not just looking for one one cue as to how does someone feel you know okay if this person is playing with her hair does that mean she likes me well it could mean that she's liking me because that's a preening gesture or that could just be a nervous tick or you know if somebody has their arms crossed is it because they're closed off and don't like me or is it because they're cold or that's just how they stand so I learned to look for what are called clusters what uh, what they called the rule of four. So instead of looking for one one cue, I would look for groups of four or more that were all uh, all occurring at the same time. So any one thing could be a, could be a habit. Four general positive signs was a good sign that they were interested. Four negative signs was a good sign they weren't interested, and it was time for me to go talk to somebody else. And just learning that, learning that I could go up and talk to strangers and be welcome, was huge. <laughs> Because suddenly the world kind of opened up to me and now, you know, I'm not going to make my best friend wherever I go, but I have options. Right. I could go talk to people. Like, I didn't think I could do that. That was amazing. Right, right. Listening to you speak about this stuff, I I'm thinking about a lot of guys who might be listening to this and who might be terrified of talking to women, but for, mm -hmm. I think, different reasons than you were. In light of the current, you know, hashtag Me Too movement, um, all of these sexual harassment scandals, um, all of these really ugly information coming out about a lot of guys, it feels to me that there's a growing climate of real fear around intergender relations, especially for, for young guys. Like, I would imagine that a lot of younger guys are either saying to hell with this, I'm not going to talk to any woman because I don't know what counts as harassment and I don't know what does. I feel like there's going to be a lot of guys just not doing that at all or just being scared of, to talk to women because of all of this um, 
you know, scandal around Me Too. What, what would you say to a guy listening to this who, you know, is watching what's going on with this and really doesn't want to be, you know, accused of harassment or anything? Like, I realize this is a really tricky question. Uh, I'm putting mm-hmm. you on the spot a bit, but what would you say, say to someone who's scared of talking to women for that reason? Well, the first thing I would say is that part of the reason why it's understandable to be scared is because for a very long time, men were socialized with a belief that certain rules applied and that we were allowed to get away with some things and that it was no big deal to be, you know, to be crude or to be crass or to say things that would make other people uncomfortable. And we were taught we weren't taught to be aware of these things because, hey, the, we're guys. The world is our oyster. Who cares what other people think? And we didn't learn a lot about how women were trained to respond to it, too. So one of the things that comes up a lot is like, oh, but she was laughing and smiling. Surely she this meant that she was OK with it. Well, a lot of us never, and myself included never realized that women often will smile and laugh when they're scared. Or when they're upset about something because it's a conciliatory gesture and it's a way of making them feel – make themselves feel a bit safer because, you know, they're, they're, they're smiling and laughing. So obviously they're, they're going to calm the other guy down. It's appeasement in a way. We never learned that women did this. So we didn't realize sometimes that we were being offensive instead of being funny. But – the fact that the rules have changed have left a lot of us flat-footed because the society is still very much in transition. Now, the thing that I would I tell people is that, first of all, it is easy to not harass people. Part of it is just basic manners. Don't, you know, if you really want to be careful, don't say anything that you wouldn't say to your mother, your grandmother, your sister, your parish priest, whatever. But the other thing is you want to – because everybody has different limits, because everybody – some people really do like crude humor and they love to banter back and forth and other people are really uncomfortable with that, pay attention. Pay attention to how people are responding. Watch for the uh, for the brittle smile, the smile that doesn't reach the eyes. Watch for the laughter that feels a little bit forced. And if you realize that you've crossed a line, stop. And apologize, say, oh, hey, I think I made you uncomfortable. I'm really sorry. I didn't I didn't want to do that. Don't give a don't give a like a non-apology apology where using the passive voice is like, oh, I'm sorry you were offended. Take ownership of the fact that you accidentally, you know, you crossed a line, but apologize and make sure you don't do it again. And if you are wanting to ask someone out on a date, Make sure that you're very clear about what you're doing. Don't just, you know, if you're with someone and you feel like there is a moment, if you feel like there is a moment like, are we attracted to each other? I feel like we might be. Is this a time to go for a kiss? There's a way to know if someone wants to kiss you or if they want to go to bed with you. And that's to ask. And I realize that there's a lot of uh, a lot of belief out there, mostly shared by guys, that asking is the least sexy thing you can do. And it really isn't. Sexual assault is the least sexy thing you can do. There are a lot of ways that you can ask for a kiss or that you can ask if someone wants to sleep with you that are really appealing and that any woman who is into you is going to really find like unbelievably hot. Like if the thing I always tell people is like, okay, imagine you're dancing with someone and your faces are very close. You're, you know, you both can feel almost the tension in the air. And if you were to lean in and say, in a, you know, a low voice, I would love to kiss you so badly right now. Most women are going to find that almost like knee meltingly hot. And that's, that's, yeah, that's not, that's not awkward at all. And even if it is just like asking literally, can I kiss you? Maybe it's a little bit awkward. Hell of a lot less awkward than going into a going in for the kiss and getting the cheek or being told, whoa, whoa, what was that? Yeah, I think stating your desire is uh, is a good way to uh, to approach this in some ways, just being really clear what you want, because you're right that that doesn't have to be a buzzkill. That doesn't have to be unsexy. And you're right. I think a lot of guys think that. But yeah, being honest uh, and upfront always and just stating, you know, laying your desire out in the line. I'm glad I asked you that yeah, question. And, oh, yeah, and owning it. I mean, part yeah. of the problem, 
is that we uh, one of the reasons why there is often so much resistance to asking is honestly the idea of but if I ask they might say no. Okay, cool. But if you ask and they say no, now you know and you know not to do it. But but if you ask and they say yes, hey, now there's no question whatsoever what they're into. It's like it, it's what's called enthusiastic consent, and there's a lot of great writing about it out there. There's a blog called Yes Means Yes, which um, has written a lot about it. And if you if you type enthusiastic consent to Google, you'll find a lot of great examples. Right, right. When you get letters from readers of your blog, either male or female, do you find the same questions coming up over and over and over again? Um, and if so, what are some of those questions? There are a lot of times where, uh, everybody kind of wants to know if they're, if the situation they're dealing with is normal or expected or reasonable or unreasonable. Yeah. And that 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 alone goes across the gender spectrum. It doesn't matter whether they're gay or straight or bi or pan or whatever. Everybody's had situations of like, okay, I don't know who's the bad guy here. Am I being unreasonable for wanting this thing? And, you know, my partner is saying, no, you can't have it. Or is my partner being unreasonable? Am I it, because my ask is too high? And a lot of people just kind of want almost a, a map of sorts of like, how do I determine what is, ex what is permissible? What isn't what's being asked of me? That's too much. And what isn't? And sometimes it is, and it can go both ways. Sometimes it really is like, um, the thing that you're asking for is kind of extreme and you, I'm not surprised your partner's not into it. But at the same time, the, the, there's also been times of like what you're asking for is actually, or what your partner's asking for is actually really basic and the fact that you're not giving it to them or that they're not giving it to you is going to be a huge conflict in your relationship if you don't resolve this. Right. Do you, um, what's the hardest part of your job? The hardest part of my job is when I get a question that has no good answer. I love anything that's really clear cut where there is a, a black and white, good answer, bad answer, do this and you will almost certainly get the result you're hoping for. But there are times where people are just in situations where there are no good answers, where it may be a case of they're doing everything right, but it's just bad luck or bad timing. Um, I had uh, one person who, because I do private coaching as well, who was an extremely dynamic, attractive, interesting individual, but was always being told, you're the sort of person that people fuck, not the sort of person people date. Wow. And it was just, yeah, to to their face often. And it was really dragging them down. And I had been with them. I kind of had followed them around, watched them interact with other people watched a lot of their uh, flirting with other folks and their even in a couple of cases saw some of their dates and was like, you're not doing anything wrong. The problem is that you're running into a lot of assholes and there's nothing you can do about that. You can't, you can't control for asshole. Um, and there are other times where people are just in bad situations where they've got a bad answer or a worse answer. And there's no way of getting, of going through the situation without heartbreak but it's a question of which is the less bad and less bad result. I hate those because I always, I, I infinitely prefer it when I can say, here's this thing, here's going to make your dreams come true. Here's going to make every, make you feel so relieved as opposed to, yeah, this is going to suck. And this is going to suck a lot for a long time. Those kind of, those ones always kind of get to me. We talked a lot earlier in this interview, I think about things that, uh, guys do wrong or things that you say you were doing wrong in the past. I don't mean necessarily morally. I just mean things that, yeah. you know, are not, not productive, not, not wise. Is yeah, there any, best practice? yeah, yeah. Is there any piece of advice or pieces of advice that you find yourself offering to women? Like, are, are there issues that come up that you find things that women could be doing differently, uh, who write to you? Um, the thing that I try, I, I try to, this is a line I try to be very careful with because otherwise I run the risk of being someone else telling women how to woman better. Um, but so I, I always say, you know, this is coming from my perspective as a straight, as a straight male, please take it with all, you know, 
all do mounts of salt. What um, in terms of like a lot of socialization, uh, one of the things I say is be upfront. So women in even in this day and age are still socialized to be very deferential to men, to be to soft sell what they want and what they need and even to sacrifice it if they worried that they're going to cause a bother or cause any problems. And as a result, you end up with women who are in relationships where their needs are not getting met and they feel like the fact that very basic things that they should be getting from their partners is too much to ask for because it might be too much of an inconvenience for their partner. And that's one of the things that comes up the most often. And, and it's literally a case of you need to ask for what you need and be willing to say that this is what you need, not to downplay it, not to soft sell it, not to say, well, if it's not too much of a problem, but to say, no, this is what I require. And it may be, this is what I require to be sexually satisfied. This may be to say, this is what I require to be emotionally satisfied and to know that wanting something and asking for it is not inherently bad. And if the person they're with can't give it to them and it is something that they need in a relationship, then that is a sign that they're not compatible. That doesn't mean that the other person is bad or that you're bad for wanting it. It just means that you have a need that they can't fulfill and they may have a need that you can't fulfill. And that just means that you two weren't right for each other. And it would be better for both of you to go find the partner for whom you are right for, who does have similar needs and similar offer, similar things to offer, than to quit trying to, to keep trying to shove that round peg into a square hole. I, I'm saying this a lot in this interview, but I think that's great advice. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks. It, is there a piece or pieces of relationship advice in general that you find yourself doling out over and over and over again? Because personally, when I get letters, I find myself saying the same thing a lot of the time uh, without intending to. Oh, yes. Uh, the one that keeps coming up over and over again is to use your words or the, the way that I've said it a lot in the column has been, all right, I want you to take everything you just told me and read it back to yourself or take everything you just told me and tell that to your partner because more often than not, it's something we've like been living with in our heads for so long, we've kind of gotten blind to it. And so once somebody says, no, 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 turn back around and reread what you just told me, then you can kind of see where things have gone. I recently had a letter from someone who is telling me about how he feels like he is too ugly and unattractive to date. And then this is he's saying this after having talked about how many matches he's gotten on Tinder, how many like dates he's gone on relationships he's had. Why isn't why is he so like, why aren't women more attracted to him? And it's just like <laughs> you have a track record. Most guys who write in would kill for. So I'm not entirely sure where you're getting the ugly thing from. Here's where your problem is. It's not your looks. It's your attitude. And, you know, working from there. Other times it's someone who is spilling their guts out to me about the problem with their relationship and everything they wish they could say to their partner. And it's, you know, literally a case of like, all right, everything you just said, perfect way to phrase it. Go say that to your partner now. And it comes down to, sometimes it just comes down to, here's how you have this really awkward conversation. Because no matter how much you love someone, sometimes they're going to have a conversation where there is just no easy way of saying stuff. And so you kind of have to sit down and say, all right, I want to have this conversation with you. Here's why I'm afraid to have this conversation with you, because I'm afraid you're going to judge me. I'm afraid you're going to be upset. I'm afraid you're going to leave me. Here's the problem. Here's how I think we should resolve it. And here's why things would be better if we did resolve it. Now, how about you? Right. One thing I've found in my coaching over and over again is people know the answer to their problem, like nine times out of 10. It's just about sort of coaxing that out of them and getting them to commit mm -hmm. to it. Like I got a letter the other day. I, I talk a lot about getting uh, people to identify their insecurities and start working on them or at least challenging them. I got a letter from a guy that said, I don't know what I'm insecure about. I mean, I have a small penis and I'm ugly, and I'm really bad in bed, and I don't make enough money, and all these things, but I don't know what I'm insecure about. It's like, well, <laughs> I think you do, yeah. <laughs> um, so much of it is about getting out of out of their way and just sort of 
helping them find their own answers. What and sometimes uh, I think yeah. it's. Uh, I was going to say sometimes I think it's also about giving them permission. Yes. And maybe this has happened for you, but many times it's a case of I've gotten you, you, I've gotten letters from people who have said, you know, I want this, that, and the other thing. And in which case, I was like, you know what you want. You're just waiting for somebody else to tell you that you can do it. So, yeah, go do it. Yeah, absolutely. What is something you wish all guys knew about women? I really wish uh, guys understood what dating was like for women from their perspective. Because it's a lot harder than we tend to think. Like Guys tend to have this idea that dating for women is like ordering a pizza. You go online or you pick up the phone and within 30 minutes, there you go. You got a boyfriend. You got a date. And in reality, it's never – it almost never works out that way. And there are a lot of reasons for it, some of which being that guys tend to be very laser-focused and very procedural. All right, I need to do this. Then I can do this next step and then I can do this next step. Whereas uh, – uh, excuse me. Whereas women tend to be a little bit more. Um, uh, there's an author, Jenna Birch, who just did uh, a book called The Love Gap. She referred to it as web thinking, where they tend to look be developing several things at the same time. They're all interconnected. So they're they're in a different place with in terms of what they're looking for in a relationship than men tend to be because men tend to be very procedural. All right, well, I need to do I need to focus on my career. And then once I get to this point of my career, then I'm ready to date. But what that means is the people that they are interested in dating at that stage in their life are not necessarily in the same stage as they are. So they they don't necessarily line up. And then that's how they meet someone who's amazing, who they don't go out with, they don't make a relationship with. And then years down the line, they're kicking themselves going like, why did I pass this up? Well, because you thought you had to be at a specific place in your life. And women are way more forgiving about that than I think men are or that men realize men tend to hold themselves to higher ideals of what they think women want than what women are actually holding them to. So if men were slightly more forgiving for themselves and slightly more understanding about what women, what dating was like from women's perspective, I think it would be a lot easier because there would be fewer miscommunications and fewer conflicting ideas of what they both wanted. Right. And in terms of just practical ways for guys to get better exposed, I always tell guys like make women friends. And don't yes. interview them, but like become friends with women. These are women you're not trying to have any kind of, you know, sexual relations with or anything like that. But yes, <clears throat> excuse me, make friends with women because you learn so much and you have all these moments that like paradigm shifting uh, insights. You know, you get that a lot, if, especially if you're friends with really smart women who are, you know, want to be open and honest with you about their experiences. Yeah. yeah and being friends with them and being legitimate friends. In in some ways, it's almost like learning another language because now you're starting to realize the ways that men are socialized to communicate and that women are socialized to communicate because men are very much – we are taught that our value is in what we do. So when we see someone with a problem, we want to try to fix the problem because, hey, I fixed the problem for you. There is my value. Whereas with women, it's like more often than not, they just want someone to listen to them and say, oh, yeah, that sucks. I've been there too. That's really awful. And then the, they've got the support and now they're going to go solve the problem themselves. They don't necessarily need someone to solve it for them. They just want someone to have their back and say, you know, you're right. You've got this. You're awesome. And guys, the other thing would be really useful is for guys to actually start having more emotionally close relationships with other men. 100%. Because, oh dear God, men are lonely. Yep. We are like our relationships with our, with our male friends tend to be of activity based they are about, all right, we're going to go out and do things rather than we're going to hang out and connect. We're going to hang out and share and we're going to actually talk and we're going to share stories and actually support one another and feel good about it. We don't get we, – we almost never – like men almost never get to that point until we're like three beers in. Yep. And if that's – it means that like when we break up with someone – we have no support afterwards. We have no no one we can fall back to unless we have female friends, and then we're just putting a lot of emotional labor on them. But if we had closer, more int emotionally intimate relationships with other men, we wouldn't have a lot of the flaws, and we wouldn't have a lot of the loneliness or this sense of like we need to put, we need to we need to find a girlfriend who's also our therapist who can also do like be all things to us, and it would it would make everybody so much happier. Absolutely. That, that's another just absolutely crucial point. Like 
I tell guys, don't be a girlfriend guy. And I was certainly guilty of this, where my girlfriend was my entire world. I let my friendships mm -hmm. fall aside. I stopped um, engaging with my hobbies as much as I used to. You know, my girlfriend was my entire social life for a couple of years. And it's like, you know, no wonder that's not sustainable, right? I always come back to the line Esther Perel talks about where in the past we would look to a village to provide us with all of these, you know, different connections and intellectual stimulus and all these things. Therapy sometimes, you know, we'd, we'd have a community mm -hmm. around us. Now we look to one person to provide us with all the connections and intimacy that an entire village used to provide. Such a crucial point. Yeah, no, that yeah, I love Esther Perel's book. She's, She's got great. such a great insight into relationships. Um, yeah, one of the things I like to point out is like I like to point guys at um, what I call nerd role models. So it's it's really easy to talk about all of these concepts, but it's a little hard to put them all into practice. So it helps to have people that you can point to and say like that. You know, maybe not exactly like that because it's ha like stuff happens because the script writer and the director say that it does. But at least it gives you an idea of what it would look like. And one of there are two really great friendships in in geek culture that I like to point to. And it's um, Sam and Frodo in Lord of the Rings <laughs> and uh, Bucky and Captain America in Captain America and Winter Soldier, because in both cases, it is a close knit, really tight, really emotional bond and there's a lot of snickering. It's like, aha, they're really in love. Ha ha ha. It's like, no, they're just close. We've that it's really kind of sad that we've mistaken emotional intimacy for sexual attraction. And it really says how much we've lost because of that. But these are examples of two men who are, you know, very much not brothers and not just in that, you know, I get you, bro, you know, man hug, pound, 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 but like who are legitimately like they legitimately love each other because they are that close, that deep in a friendship and they mean that much to each other. And those are relationships that I think a lot of us should aspire to. Absolutely. And I think that that is represents more of the appeal of war movies than most guys would like to admit because you're getting in a lot of these films saving private ryan platoon mm. whatever the deer hunter you're seeing these these very very close-knit men and these really intimate friendships and i think that that that's why we like those movies a lot more than we like to let on you know we think we like it because you know manly manliness and explosions and killing the mm -hmm. enemy and all that but i think a lot of the appeal of war movies is simply that um i know we don't have much time left <clears throat> Excuse me. Speaking personally for a minute, I'm just curious, like, well, what's your relationship situation right now, if you don't mind my asking? Oh, I'm married. We've been married for uh, six years now. Wow. Congratulations. That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah. I, yeah. I, it was. Hmm? No, Sorry, go ahead. Go, go ahead. Well, I was just going to ask, what does she think of the whole Dr. Nerdlove thing? Oh, she thinks it's fascinating. She was she is one of my oldest friends. And uh, when we first met, like. We, a lot of our friends thought, like, my God, you must have been carrying a torch for her all this time. It's like, no, actually really haven't. When we first met, it was like it was like at first sight. Like we were really tight friends from the get go. But there was never there. I, there was never any of that. Like, oh, if only you were single. If only, if only she liked me. There was never any of that. There was never any friend zone moment. It was just literally like, no, we're really good friends. And in some alternate universe, yeah, we're probably a scorching couple. But and we just never fell out of contact with each other. And then eventually at one point she was having a hard time at grad school. She was going through a lot of personal stuff. And I said, you know what? We haven't hung out in person in forever. You're coming to see me. I'm not taking no for an answer. And that just flipped the switch where suddenly like suddenly our conversation started getting a little flirtier and it got to a point where finally it was a case of, you know what? I'm just going to go for it. I'm going to see if there's anything there and if there isn't okay, cool. And if there is awesome. And she has been there, like she has seen my entire transformation. She saw me going from like dateless geek to the, the horrible like relationship I first had that kind of formed a lot of expectations I had for relationships until much later on to the pickup scene, to getting out of the pickup scene. And yeah, she found the whole thing kind of amazing to watch from, from a distance and it's led to some interesting conversations where I'll be talking about past examples or past adventures I've had in front of her, in front of my friends. And my friends are like, you're, you're talking about this in front of your wife, you know, it was like, <laughs> and then my response is, you think she doesn't know? 
Right. Hell, half the time she saw these happen when they were going on. She got the real-time updates. Right. That's fascinating, actually. That's quite an interesting story. I think I'd love to have you back sometimes just so we can talk about marriage, because that's sure. that's something I know very little about, and uh, I'd love to talk to you about that stuff. Well, Harris, this was just a great interview. Um, thank you so much for your time today, man. This was awesome. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This has been great. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I certainly did. Harris is a lot of fun to talk to, as you can tell, and I really hope to have him on for a future episode. To learn more about Harris and his very interesting work under the moniker Dr. Nerdlove, please go to humansinlove.com, where you'll find the show notes for this episode. You'll find a link to Harris's blog and his books and everything we talked about in today's episode. So please go to humansinlove.com to learn a whole lot more. As always, fellow humans, if you're enjoying this podcast and you'd like me to continue making new episodes, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on your podcast app of choice and leave a rating and a review. They are very helpful and they put a big smile on my face. Thank you very much for listening, my friends. And please remember this week and every week that life is short. So be sure to have yourself a grand old time. I'll talk to you next Tuesday. <laughs>